This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Local stuff is always intriguing because it has the most impact on your pocketbook and mine because of property taxes and things of that nature. And uh, there was a report that uh, has some rather startling numbers in this. This is not a new story, but it's, I guess, the, uh, another version, an updated version of an ongoing story. Counselors spending what they call discretionary funds and how they're spending it. Uh, the issue comes up as the debate looms over the fate of discretionary funds. This is something called the Area Rating Special Capital Reinvestment Reserve. And basically what this does is it gives the counselors in wards 1 through 8 a whole pile of money every year. And uh, they can pretty much do what they want with it, which is not really what it was intended to be. John Best, the publisher of the Bay Observer, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Good morning, John. How are you today? I'm well, Bill. That's Happy uh, Monday. And to you, too. This is this is not a new story. This has been going on for quite a few years. Uh, some people call it a slush fund. I know counselors bristle when that phrase comes up. But uh, I'll tell you, John, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's a fundamental fairness issue. Uh, I, I'm just. I'm not comfortable with the idea that we have two classes of counselors. Uh, I understand the the principle behind it, and and that it's money that otherwise would have been a, a you know a fairly minuscule tax reduction in the, in wards one through eight. But I I just think the whole concept uh, is is not fair. Uh, if I lived in, you know, one of the five or six wards that doesn't have this, I, I think I'd really feel shortchanged. Uh, and, and, you know, in, in some cases, I think the money has actually been reasonably well spent. I mean, some of them actually have used it for roads. And, uh, you know, I mean, if you drive around Hamilton right now, I think you could make the case that any nickel not spent on fixing potholes is uh, money wasted. Here's the thing, and I want to go back to the definition and uh, of what this was supposed to be when they finally decided on this. And I, your point's well taken. This there's, there's a fairness element to this, and so that's that's fine. They said too much money was going into the suburbs, not enough into the wards and the older cities, so to speak. So they said, okay, you guys are going to get this this reallocation. But it was supposed to be, if I can paraphrase this, for infrastructure needs. Uh, but as a result, uh, that that was that's what it says on paper. But if you look at where this money has been spent over the last number of years, uh, breakfast programs, I think Council Marulli used part of his uh, in Ward 4 to, to pay off the, the hotel, the City Motor Hotel, to buy that. Uh, we've had, you know, sending troop Boy Scout troops off to this, to that, the other thing. It looks to me, John, very much like a lot of people are simply using this as a short circuit around uh, things like grants programs and say, well, I can't qualify for that. I'm just going to hit up my city councilor. Yeah, and I think uh, as you know, I'm sure as worthwhile as it may be to to help uh, Boy Scouts go to on a on a trip and things like that. That really it really was supposed to be infrastructure, and to most people's definition, that means roads, sidewalks, water, sewer. It does not mean uh, you know softer services like. Uh, community art and and things like that. I mean, those things are all valuable, but the minute you get um, some members of council able to hand those kind of goodies out where others can't, uh, it starts to look a lot more like uh, public relations, uh, election earring in a sense. And, it, it, you know, I, I'm just not comfortable uh, with this. And also, I think when the plan first started, if I'm not mistaken, there was some sense that it was a temporary measure. I'm not sure if they actually had a wind-down date, but it 
it seemed to me when we first heard about this that there was some sense that it wasn't going to be around forever, but it appears it is around forever. Well, and here's maybe why it's more important to have this discussion now that this is an election year, and I think the last time we, we really shone the light on this was probably four years ago when it was an election year. And I had a discussion with somebody who was running against one of the incumbents in the last election and, and pointed to this very specific program and said, talk about tipping the scales in the favor of the incumbent. I mean, incumbency has its its benefits anyway. I think what, about 95% of incumbents traditionally get reelected in municipal elections. But then, as, as if that's not enough, you simply give the incumbent this pile of money and he goes to his constituents, his neighborhood associations, whatever, and simply says, what can I do for you? What would you like me to get for you? Uh, it's and and don't tell me that doesn't have an influence on the way people are going to vote us. So is this really democratic? I I don't think it is. Uh, I mean I've been critical of this uh, really for several years. Uh, preoccupied with so many other things that go on over there that I haven't uh, focused on it. But to me it it's just all wrong. I mean uh, the last thing we need is a uh, is another way of making incumbency uh, more of an advantage. I mean now that we've We've changed the nomination date and the fundraising date until May. That's that's going to put a lot of would-be um, municipal candidates at a, at an even further disadvantage. So, I mean, there's a, as you say, incumbency is almost a guarantee for re-election in this community and and in many others. And and the last thing we need is uh, sort of the unfettered handing out of cash. And again, uh, you know, looking at the list in the story, uh, you know, some of the some of the stuff is is certainly, I you know, it's the odd, really frivolous thing. But a lot of it is is uh, I think worthwhile uh, in and of itself. But does it qualify as hard infrastructure? Which I think was the intent of the of of the plan, uh, flawed as it is, in my view. Well, and the, your point's well taken. Look at because I'm not going to say, hey, that's not worthy. That's not worthy. Uh, these are all part of our community, part of the fabric, whether it's renovating the Westdale Theater, and that's where some of the money went in Ward 1. Those are all great projects. My concern is that money shouldn't be there in the first place for counselors to simply toss around as they wish. And I know I know what the defense always is, is, well, we have public consultation. Well, sure they do. Sure they do. That's how you get the public on side with you. If it's simply saying, what can I get for you? What can I build for you? What what can I pay for? That, that's That's public consultation. And and the check and balance is supposed to be, well, it has to be vetted through council. Have you ever, John, in all the years you've been covering city council, had a council say, no, we don't think you can spend that on that particular project, knowing full well that if you say that, that that's going to come back and bite you when you ask for something? Yeah, exactly. Uh, no, I, I'm not aware of a single instance where uh, this discretionary spun, uh, spending was turned over by council. For that matter, it's not just a discretionary spending. I mean, uh, this council and many preceding councils tend to not interfere in any ward issue, uh, whether it's uh, money from this fund or, or just out of general revenue. It's um, it's a kind of a fiefdom system. And, and of course, the public at large is not going to complain about this because they're the ones who benefit from this. Those, those groups that otherwise would have to go through a much more, I think, intricate vetting system, whether it's for some sort of a a grant or something of that nature can simply go and, as we said, talk to their ward councilor and say, "Look, I'd like I'd like X number of dollars for this." Yeah, and and the public consultation, and you know, I I like the idea of public consultation, but it could also be construed as just further advertising of uh, how generous and uh, beneficial uh, a particular councilor is. 
so it, it kind of swings both ways. I, I just think this thing should be phased out. Uh, we're, you know, we're how many years now? 18 years since amalgamation. Uh, we certainly have some issues that we need to deal with around area rating, but um, this two two class system of councillors, I think, just you know, really flies in the face of you know our democratic institutions. Well, and again, this is so prescriptive, and and you know they're going to say, well, what would you have us do with the money? Spend it on infrastructure. Every year, and we're going to get through through these lists in just a couple of weeks, John, when they start their budget process at City Hall, there's a list of infrastructure priorities, road projects, sewer projects, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they're ranked. And those rankings are done by staff, supposedly objective uh, evaluations of everything. All you need to do is say, okay, that big chunk of money is going to go to infrastructure projects in wards one through eight. Not each individual war, but just if it was for the inner city, then make it for the inner city. And, you know, this this begs the question, if they're going to continue to do this, what's going to happen in the next term of council, John? Because there's going to be an extra award up on the mountain. Does that one automatically qualify for some of that cash, too? Well, that was discussed in the, in the Spectator article, which, by the way, was a, a very good and uh, balanced uh, article. Um, yeah, it, it, it does create some problems because we, we're now going to have some wards that uh, contain uh, parts of the old city, which were eligible for the funding, but contain uh, parts of the suburbs. Uh, a prime example being Ward 5, which is going to now have part of Stony Creek downtown in it, uh, which is not eligible. So, yeah, it's 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 going to be uh, confusing. I'm not optimistic, frankly, that the you know that the thing is going to go away. I I don't hear that around the table. I uh, the closest we got to that was uh, Councillor Conley, who put his hand up and said, "I'd like some of that money as well." Um, obviously, unaware of how the fund uh, came to be. I, I think the answer, frankly, if we're going to do this, is, is to have it go back into uh, the capital budget and uh, let staff sort it out in their ranking the way they normally do. Just have it, it's another $13 million roughly, uh, which is frankly a drop in the bucket, uh, you know, as to what's needed. But at least that way you, you get it back into some kind of a regimented process if you want to really do something about the infrastructure deficit, you know, why don't you just simply apply that money to that large list that's out of there every year? And, and, and you know, because that, that's what this really came down to. They said, well, you know, there's an inequity here. And, and the inner city felt as if they were getting the short end of the stick. So now they've thrown the balance the other way right now. The, the, the obvious solution here is just let staff decide where that money's going to be spent, not let counselors do it. Because they can't do it objectively. It's very subjective what they're doing. Yeah, and uh, that's not to say that staff can't still exert uh, influence, or the council councillors uh, have all kinds of ways of exerting influence on staff. Oh, don't tell me so, that happens, John. Come on. So, so, so it's not like uh, they they're not going to have a say. It's just it's not going to be such a blatant um, exercise as it is now. That that really, I I don't know how you defend this. I I really wonder whether it would you know if somebody decided to challenge this with. Uh, the OMB, if there there wouldn't be another adverse ruling uh, for Hamilton. Therein lies the problem, though. Who's going to actually do that? Because the, everybody has the potential right now to benefit from it. Yeah, I mean, it would have to be a, a citizen. I, I don't detect anybody on council uh, willing to take that up, even among those who are not benefiting from the program, because, uh, you know, the payback can come in other ways. 
So I, I don't see the initiative coming from council. It's probably as as in the ward boundary issue. It's going to take a, an engaged citizen to uh, put their hand up and say this isn't right, and I'm going to take it to uh, a higher authority uh, at Queens Park to get an answer. Well, and then we could go by on that same merry-go-round that we did with the ward boundary issue, where it's going to come back if that, in fact, somebody were to do that. It's going to come back with probably an unfavorable decision that pleases nobody. And councillor could have and should have done something about it. But right now, they're, they're reaping the benefits of this. Uh, I mean, there's a, a direct correlation between the way that this money is going to be allocated this year and how many re-election signs for that incumbent councillor are going to be seen up around any one of those projects in any of those neighborhoods. It just doesn't seem fair, especially when, as you say, it's getting harder and harder for anybody to challenge an incumbent on city council. Now, even more so now because they got this great big pot of money they can simply say, dole out, I need a little more support over in this area here. I think I'm going to fix a park up there. You know, I'll, Hey, guys, they'll, they'll be getting the letters right now. I mean, I, I know the councils will be sending them out pretty soon right now saying, what do you want? Yeah, at the very minimum, I, I would think that uh, the funds should be suspended in an election year. I mean, even that would be... Um, a, a bit of an improvement. It, it still doesn't address the fundamental issue of a two-tier, two classes of counselor issue, which uh, really bothers me. But at least if you could, you know, have sort of the blatant uh, uh, goodie handing out uh, suspended during an election year, it, it, it wouldn't be quite as bad as it is now. Well, it's going to be interesting to see just who may speak up uh, on this issue because there is an inequity here. And, and if, in fact, there was some injustice that was being done before because too many capital projects were being spent, uh, money dollars rather, were being spent out in the suburbs, how do those people out in Stony Creek and Waterdown and Ancaster feel now about the fact that some of their tax dollars is, in fact, going to pay for some questionable spending in, in wards one through eight? Well, I'm sure they're they're pretty unhappy about it. I, I'd really like to see the day now that we're 18 years into amalgamation. Really hoping that at some point we're approaching uh, the end of this urban suburban uh, divide. It it seems to me that as uh, you know, as as we see growth of the city into what were suburban areas, uh, that that increasingly the the nature of the city is changing. I mean, you're always going to have beautiful downtown Dundas and old Stony Creek. None of that's ever going to go away, but it seems to me that we're, we're at a point where there's, we have a lot more in common with each other than, uh, than divides us. And, and this is the kind of issue that if we could get rid of this uh, program, it would uh, just remove another irritant. That would be nice, but I sadly don't see that happening anytime soon. But it may be part of the solution, in fact. John, thanks as always. Great talking with you again today. My pleasure, Bill. John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Let's talk about what's going on on the political landscape. We know, of course, there's going to be a provincial election in uh, June, June 7th to be specific. And, uh, well, who knows what's going to happen. Uh, The Ontario Liberal Party held a rally in Toronto. Uh, Premier Kathleen Wynne uh, rallied the troops and uh, got everybody pumped up by all indications. But uh, the focus is on the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party right now, ever since Patrick Brown stepped down about a week and a half or so ago, and uh, the implications of uh, who that new leader may be and who, in fact, might be the next premier of this province. Who knows at this stage? We speculated last week about who may be in the race. Doug Ford declared his candidacy. He held a rally yesterday in Toronto that was well attended, and uh, Ford was, well, being Ford. And if the Prime Minister 
wants to try to make us, I'll tell the Prime Minister, well, just the same way his father said it, just watch me. Just watch me. As Doug Ford uh, saying that he's not going to allow a carbon tax in Ontario if he becomes Premier. Uh, Rod Phillips, who is a well-known business person and media mogul, who is speculated to have uh, been to, to join the race, announced on uh, the weekend that he will not be a candidate for the leadership of that party. Instead, he was throwing his support between the newest declared candidate, Carolyn Mawruni. We need to build the kind of Ontario that strives to give all of our children the opportunities they deserve. To do that, we need a government that actually cares about us, that focuses on affordability, economic growth, and opportunity. I'm the only candidate who can bring that change. Something different, forward-looking, and positive. Something new. Caroline Mulroney uh, doing the talk show circuit this morning on all the Toronto uh, television shows, uh, declaring her official candidacy for the race. The other candidate uh, is Christine Elliott, of course, former cabinet minister in previous uh, progressive conservative governments. Uh, she tweeted the other day that she's in. She hasn't had a rally yet, but you can anticipate that's coming. So now there are three. Joining us to talk about the political landscape here in this province is Barry Kay, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University. How are you doing this morning, Barry? Good morning, Bill. Uh, not surprised about the Caroline Mulroney uh, announcement. Uh, or the Phillips announcement came as a bit of a shock. To our, seemed, he seemed pretty gung-ho about this a few days ago. Yeah, well, then there have been a few others that uh, had speculated that they might be in. Uh, Aaron O'Toole was another one uh, that had been mentioned, even Lisa Raitt. Yeah, you know, I was just thinking, uh, by contrast with the federal conservative contest, one thing that this contest really has is clarity. Uh, the distinctions between the candidates are going to be very clear, un unlike you know, that federal contest where there were so many more people. But indeed, for the most part, many of them just seem to got, get lost in the fog in terms of what made them different. Uh, this time around, we've got uh, a choice between uh, basically an outsider, a, a populist trying to challenge the whole system in the spirit not unlike his brother, but also not unlike the president of the United States, I guess, south of the border. You've got an experienced hand in Christine Elliott, and you've got somebody with name recognition from her father, but who uh, somebody who's sort of bright and perhaps has a little more pizzazz. Uh, the question with Carolyn Mulroney is going to be whether or not she has the chops and the experience. I understand that she was going to be running anyway, and she's already got the nomination in a fairly safe conservative seat, York Simcoe. Uh, but um, certainly the idea that it's time for a woman when there's women leaders on other sides and with the Me Too campaign, indeed, frankly, the way that, um, that uh, Brown uh, exited the scene, uh, I think the idea of a woman leader certainly has appeal. But I, again, I, I just, it was hard for me, you know, trying to sort of think of an opener that indeed uh, each of them has a very distinctive lane to run and try to appeal to, uh, to the voters. Yeah, I, and they're both, uh, both Ford and, and Mulroney are using the outsider thing. Uh, and this, is, this is sort of like, uh, and I'm not trying to draw any analogy between any philosophies here, but this is uh, the same as, as what happened to John McCain, of course, and, and his famous running mate, you know, trying to be the mavericks, the outsiders, outside the system. Uh, it's 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 a label, I guess, that appeals to some people. It's one they're trying to find a way, I guess, to, to try to make it apply to them. Well, yeah, for Mulroney, I mean, she wants to suggest that she yet it's time to end 14 years or whatever it is. It's almost uh, 15 years now of uh, of liberal rule. For it to suggest that she's an outsider, given her background, is pretty pretty rich. Um, how and uh, other than the fact that she lived uh, for a fair fair length of time in the United States, um, the the outsider in this race is clearly uh, is clearly uh, Ford. Um, but again, I, I, I find <laughs> the ability to capture his charm a bit elusive for me, at least personally. Uh, it, 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 the, the conservatives want a winner. 
Um, the idea of it being time for change is certainly a theme that should make sense. The problem, if there is a problem with Mulroney, and she's attractive, and I, I think she has some political smarts, but um, she has not been through this before. And when we have people that are brand new to the process, they can and do make mistakes. And the concern, I don't want to suggest it's a Hail Mary pass. That may be a little strong. But the fact is she is somebody who is not known and hasn't been through the, the political uh, you know, tank themselves, whereas Christine Elliott, I think, is a much more predictable and safer commodity for the conservatives going into the campaign. Whether Christine Elliott can generate as much excitement is something else. I'm not even sure whether Mulroney can do it either. But it's certainly interesting times. And indeed, in the short run, of course, it's going to be Ford that's making the headlines because he's a flamethrower. That's what he wants to do. Um, and, and again, also just the fact that the, the contest itself is being held under such unusual circumstances because of the, the time frame. Uh, let's see, they, I think there were two weeks for people to sign up members from last Friday, so there's less than two weeks now. For, and indeed, the, the notion of being able to sign up as many members as they can, which was really Brown's success formula you know, back in the day, uh, that's, that's something that's, that's going to happen very, very quickly. This is not a, a normal kind of campaign. I'm not at all sure how it's going to go. I I have a hunch that the liberals are probably hoping that, in fact, Ford might break through and that he might be the alternative. I think that uh, Wynn would probably look much much more appealing compared to him, but time will tell. It's, I, I'm not even sure how they're going to do this. I mean, you know, I, somebody was asking me that like yesterday, is there going to be a debate? I, I don't think if they have time for it, uh, they may or may not. I'm not so sure of the vehicle for that. But to, to go back to, it, to what happened in the U.S. election last fall, though, when you look at that result, Barry, that I'm still shaking my head at, you can see as you look back and, and, and track, I mean, Trump took up the oxygen in just about every one of those debates. He wasn't the smartest guy by any stretch of the imagination in any of those debates, but he made the most quotable quotes, the headlines the, yep. the next day. Mm-hmm. Is, is that Ford's tact here? Is that what's going to happen? Is he just going to be the, the, the guy who's going to dominate this, this, this whole run? Consciously or not, I think he will get a lot of the headlines. Now, in fact, the contest is a little bit different. Uh, Trump's appeal was at much more of a mass level, and this ostensibly is trying to appeal to to party elites, knowing that, in fact, they do have the not quite now two weeks to sign people up. Look, the whole contest, I think they're talking about March 10th. We're we're talking about, what, five weeks for this whole thing to unfold? I imagine there will be debates eventually. They're not going to be at the front end of the campaign. I mean, this is going to happen in a flash in terms of what goes on. And as a result, I, I don't know how successful... Ford is going to be at signing up members, but that's clearly the approach he's going to make, trying to uh, excite people and to suggest that he will characterize Mulroney as an insider. And in terms of party elite, she clearly is. Um, but I think the distinction between um, uh, Elliot and Mulroney is going to be the idea that Elliot has experience. Mulroney is more youthful, and perhaps that will, and perhaps a little more media savvy. I'm not sure. I, I don't really have much of a sense of her yet. We'll, we'll get that idea. We certainly are seeing her through the prism of her father. Uh, but uh, your, your suggestion that, uh, that it's Ford that probably is going to get a disproportionate amount of ink and attention through the media, I think that's probably fair to say. Whether it will resonate positively or not, I don't know during the campaign. Well, I don't know if positivity or a positive vibe is even going to play a role in this. I mean, Ford was, was quoted on Friday as saying that he's, he's not going to make this a mudslinging campaign, that he respects the other candidates, yet 
Uh, there are people in the Ford camp that have already taken shots. They, they're As characterizing Christine Elliott and saying, well, she was working for Kathleen Wynne. How could you possibly have her as the leader? As she as he launches into the camp. Yeah, I mean, that's Trump style, too, isn't it? And, and of course, Mulroney being, you know, well, he's at his fundraiser yesterday, he says, I've never met her, and she's been living in the States for about 20 years, so how could I? Well, she hasn't been living in the States for... She spent for, some time in the States. Yeah, she, she went to university down there, and I think she worked in, on Wall Street for a little while, mm-hmm. but... Uh, uh, I can see the Michael Ignatieff liners being dusted off for this one. Yeah, no, I think Mulroney will have the chance to break through, and if she comes across effectively on TV, that may overshadow all the rest of it. Um, I think it's the question of, of sort of a, a, a more known hand and experienced person politically, to also having uh, Christine Elliott having been the spouse of, uh, of Jim Flaherty. I think she will sort of, I think for the party insiders, who are afraid of mistakes during the campaign, and they had very much reason to think that Brown might be full of mistakes had he actually been, been able to hang on till the election campaign. I think Elliott will seem to be a safer choice. There is, is risk with Mulroney, but she at least is not a flamethrower in the way that, um, that Ford is. Um, Ford, I really wonder what he would be like in an election campaign. Also, he's, I don't know how well-known he is. His brother certainly got media attention, but how well-known Ford is outside of Toronto. Um, in Toronto, he does. Uh, the notion of Ford Nation was really just a sort of a, a myth, anyway. Uh, there are people. I mean, when we hear the term nation, we think of the Maple Leaf Nation or the Red Sox Nation, as if there's people all over the place that want to be part of it. It was just a sort of a, a slogan to, to suggest more more attention and more popularity than he had. Ford's appeal. He's. I mean, he's. I already hear him talking about municipal issues, cutting taxes, making it easier for cars to get into the city. Things that he's used in the. Um, in Toronto politics, I'm not sure how how to what extent those those slogans are going to appeal beyond the um, beyond the the GTA area. Uh, we, we also uh, have seen that he he wants to challenge the party's commitment to the uh, the carbon tax, which is is part of an agreement with the feds. Uh, Elliot's also got some reservations about that. I'm not quite sure how that's all going to uh, going to go down, but. Um, Ford will not easily fit into the party platform that's already been announced. Uh, we'll, we'll see. Maybe he'll just, as with Trump, just uh, adopt what he wants and, and, and jettison what he doesn't want. Um, I, I think uh, Ford is very much going to be a loose cannon, but he's going to get lots of attention. And if that's important in terms of the people voting in the conservative, um, the, you know, the conservative contest, he may do better than I think. My, my hunch right now is that he won't win. And frankly, I think it's time for a woman uh, for the party and probably for the province. Uh, the fourth thing is there's a phenomenon going on, and I understand that everybody that's that is pulling for him, and I've seen a lot of action on social media about this. They're the same sort of people that support Donald Trump. They think he he's going to have that same what they think positive impact. But outside of the, uh, the Toronto area itself, though, Barry, really, uh, you know, is is what's what's Doug Ford known for? From my standing, it's, it, he was Rob Ford's brother. I mean, he served one term on Toronto City Council. That's his political experience, and he. You know, he, he co-hosted the radio show that Ford did every Sunday, you know, while, while he was the mayor. But, you know, there's there's no legacy. There's no, well, this is what t- this guy does. This is what he stands for. He's just, uh, he seems to be just against everything. Yeah, he's sticking a middle finger in your face. Is yeah. basically what he's about. The lack of experience, of course, can be said about Carolyn Mulrooney, too. Sure. Oh, her yeah. Background, her recognition is purely through her father. Without that name, I don't think she would even be a, a candidate for the leadership. And I think that's probably why Phillips got out. He realized that, in fact... Any appeal that he would have would probably overlap with the kind of appeal she would, and he, she was more likely to outflank him. I have a hunch that's probably why he just decided that uh, discretion was the better part of virtue. You mentioned about Ford railing against the elite, the party insiders. 
which is a, a, an interesting strategy when you consider the fact that in some way, shape, or form, uh, somebody, in, uh, one of those insiders, are the ones who are pulling the strings right now. D- d- is this biting the hand that feeds you? Well, yeah, I mean, he, he's got to be thinking that he can lure people into the party, or and maybe some of the Brown supporters that were signed up in the past will, and that may still be members, uh, will will be uh, find this appealing. I think if he had longer time to be able to sign up members, I think that would that would assist him. I think the short the short sign up time, which is really now less than two weeks. Um, is going to work against him rather than the others, uh, because I think the traditional conservative membership is more likely to to find uh, Elliot or uh, or Mulroney appealing. Um, I, I don't get it personally. I frankly find it a turnoff. So I, I don't want to, but I don't want to suggest it can't have appeal to certain people. The kinds of people that um, his brother was able to be successful with in city politics, and Doug Ford is not his brother. I mean, he's not the addict either. So there's some good things about it. But um, he does not have sort of the personal connection. He's a much more aloof kind of figure than um, Rob Ford was more of a people person, a backslapping kind of individual. Doug Ford's trying to appeal to the same kind of ideas of people that are sort of shut out and left out of society and are, feel that they're overtaxed and underrepresented in government. But um, he does not have the same kind of personal connection with people. And I don't think that will serve him well down the road. But there are people who feel alienated from the system in general and may use this as an opportunity to challenge it. Again, I, if I were a liberal or a new Democrat, I'd probably be cheering for Ford to win the nomination. And I think a lot of uh, establishment conservatives are probably very fearful that it might catch on. He may be even right in suggesting that the rules are being stacked against him, although, frankly, the rules were set up even before uh, he, he got into the race. This whole thing, the irony, of course, of the, of the whole contest is that the conservatives may be, I don't know how much dirt the liberals had on Brown had, he, had it not been revealed and had he not resigned, stepped down a couple of weeks ago. But it would have been much better for the party if all of this had happened six months ago or, frankly, six years ago. Um, but given that, in fact, Brown probably was a flawed candidate, the conservatives may very well end up doing better. I'm not sure they're going to win. I think the, the notion of what's going to happen in June, uh, there's a lot of issues to drop between now and then. But I think the conservative party may, in fact, do very much better, particularly with Elliott or Mulroney, than they would have with Brown in the in the, that contest in June. The uh, the membership issue is interesting. I have about a minute left here, but uh, Patrick Brown, before he stepped aside, of course, was bragging about the fact that they had over 200,000 members uh, that had been signed up. Uh, Vic Fideli uh, says that's probably about 125,000, but we're still going over and evaluating what they think are a lot of duplicates. They figure it may be as low as 75,000, not the 200,000. So, uh, the, I, again, you know, the, the, the stories about the popularity of the party and the leader right now seem to have been overblown. There's some funny stuff that's going on there, particularly with party nominations, including the Hamilton West nomination. Yeah. I'm not sure that's going to be a, a big uh, a big skeleton at the, at the end of the day. But, um, yeah, Brown, Brown did not help the party in terms of its organization. And the fact that Fideli dropped out of the race so early on uh, suggests that he's aware of some, some problems that are out there. Barry, thanks as always. I appreciate the time today. Happy to talk. You betcha. Barry Kay, of course, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University. Very tight time frame. It's going to be interesting to see and whether or not those are the three or whether there be more seeking the uh, head of the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party. Seems to change almost every day. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Concerned about what's going on in Ontario hospitals. We've done a number of programs about that and about the overcrowding, and about the workload, and about the level of care, frankly. Well, contract negotiations have stopped with nurses in Ontario. They have walked away uh, saying that demands for efficiencies will impact patients and staff. No kidding, they will. Vicki McKenna is the uh, president of the uh, Ontario Nurses Association. 
joining us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Good morning, Vicki. Thanks so much for the time today. Hi there. Good morning. I, I was going to say it's a very busy time for you, but uh, since you've walked away from the negotiations, I guess you have some time. This has got to be a very frustrating time for you. Oh, more than just a little bit frustrating. We've, we've spent, we spent 10 straight days uh, negotiations across the table and then an additional three days in mediation uh, with the, the assistance of um, a mediator uh, trying to work our way through uh, what we were dealing with with the Ontario Hospital Association, and uh, there was just no, there's just no room. There was nowhere to go with them on it, and we knew that we were, you know, we were in a no-win battle at the table at that point. So now we are in a situation where we're about, we're off to arbitration. At the end of February, we said to the OHA, you know, we're we're willing to negotiate, but you have to negotiate with us. Uh, and they had no intention, clearly, of doing that. Well, I know that uh, that you used the phrase efficiencies, that they were looking for efficiencies. And uh, that must send chills down your spine every time you hear that phrase, because we've seen this happen. You know, we, we know this story. We know how the story ends. Efficiencies basically means they're going to ask you to do more with less. Exactly, exactly. And and I said to them repeatedly, you know, we will continue to resist the industrialization of the healthcare system, of our workforce, and and we will not just operate in just-in-time staffing. We will not, you know, continue. We are working short-staffed in most units on every day. We are working excessive overtime. And I think that anyone who follows the news or has walked into a hospital in Ontario sees clearly right off the start that the capacity situation that we're in. And our contract, well, it won't deal with the number of patients. What we're trying to deal with is to make sure we have the right number of nurses and that the nurses who are working are not put in situations where they are working the hours and the workload that they are trying to juggle. Um, they've been very clear with us. We survey our membership extensively about their reality on the front line and what's happening for them. And they're telling us, look, you know, we cannot continue to work short. I can't do any more overtime. I'm worried that my patients are suffering. I can't get to them as much as I want to. And I can't help them and their families get through whatever crisis or situation has brought them to hospital. This isn't, you know, this isn't okay. We can't accept it anymore, and we have to stand firm on it. And so our negotiating team heard that very clearly. They too, all of them are working nurses at the front line. They're really clear with us, and the team was really firm that we will not accept these concessions that they were offering us. Uh, they won't, wouldn't, didn't want to discuss workload. They didn't want to discuss solutions to that. It was just a very, very frustrating uh, 13 days, to be honest with you. But, but what about the response, though? I Talk to us about that, Vicki. The, the OHA that you referred to, by the way, for our listeners, is the Ontario Hospital Association. Uh, they're the ones Correct. on the other side of the table. Uh, clearly, yeah. surely they must understand that we're almost in crisis mode in, in most Ontario hospitals right now. You only need to walk down the halls uh, to see that uh, or visit the ER for five minutes, and you can understand that there's a staffing problem. Do, do they not acknowledge that? You know, the only response I get from them, or I was hearing very clearly, is that, well, you know what, we have, we're trying to work within our, our budgetary framework. We have a mandate to operate under and uh, that we are, you know, putting here on the table, and that's it. 
you know, I was talking about patients, and I said to them, if you put patients in the, at the forefront of your decision-making, then, you know, everybody, you know, th- this is a win for everybody. We have to look at the needs of the patients that we're serving. You can't industrialize our workforce. It, it just does not work. It's never worked. Every other jurisdiction that's done this sort of thing has failed, and why they continue to pursue it, I, I, you'd have to ask them, but they all they kept giving us back is we we just can't do we just can't do what you're asking uh, for, and that's not the subject of the negotiations. So uh, we disagree. Now you can't strike. I, mean, I just want our listeners to understand that you're not allowed to strike, but you can't take job action. Yeah, we we do not have the right to strike in the hospital sector, nor do we in long term care. Uh, that that is the case here in Ontario. And, yeah, when you say job action, you know, there there are things that could, you know, some people might define as job action. We're not discussing that. At yeah, you're not, you're not there yet. No, we are not there yet. We are going to arbitration. We're, what, are, what we're doing, of course, and with, you know, talking about it with our members, like with the nurses, talking about it to politicians, um, this is, something that, you know, we want people to know what the reality is, and I believe that many people do, thanks to a lot of the coverage from the media on what's happening in our system, but that we have to, you know, stand firm on what's important and what's important is patient care, and that's where our, you know, that's where we're at, and we're not backing away from that. By the way, when we say who's on the other side of the table, they specifically, of course, being the Ontario Hospital Association, uh, and, and we've talked to members of that association in the past, uh, and, and I, I, there's a certain legitimacy to what they're saying about funding. I get that. Uh, and, and to that end, by extension, I mean, the provincial government has to take some of the, 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 the blame for the circumstance here right now, uh, because they're the ultimate funding source for this. So there's, there's a, a, a pyramid situation that's going on here, but a pox on both their houses because they just don't seem to understand that what has to happen here is a remodeling of the system. The way they're delivering healthcare right now is getting more and more problematic, and they're looking at it as a mathematical equation, as opposed to saying we have to look after human beings. That's exactly our position on it, and we know. I mean, we we watch, we we understand the economics of what's happening, but that doesn't mean that it's okay and that we accept it. That you know, that's that's the point. Is that you know, yes, we know, and the hospitals have been requesting more funding. And they did make their budget submissions for this next provincial budget, asking for more base uh, base funding for their operations. And, and like I get all of that, but you know it's enough already. You know, the healthcare is uh, something that we all depend on, and Ontarians depend on it. And good healthcare is, you know, is just I believe a right. Healthcare is a right I believe in this province and in this country. And yes, it's a public service, and yes, it's labor intensive, and it does cost money to operate. But you know, bottom lining it and looking at it just clearly in the dollars and cents, um, the value of registered nurses is clearly demonstrated in the research. The more registered nurses you have, the less complication rates, the less mortality rates, the less frequently people bounce back to hospital after discharge, and those are you know cost savings in the long run. And we, you know, we know they're trying to build up the community and uh, healthcare providers and people having care in their homes. All of that's good stuff. However, 
it's not in place. We don't have enough of it, and, and we're, it's like the cart is out and the horse is still having breakfast. Like, we're not, they're not ready to move that quickly into it, and and yes, I know the hospitals are in a bit of a bind, but it's time to take a stand on that, and we are doing that. We're not going to accept um, what they've offered us. We will not, you know, accept that at all. We're going to make our case in front of an arbitrator, and we're going to put the stats in front of them and talk about what the reality is for healthcare. And we believe that they need to to listen to that and to make decisions based on that. And we can only, you know, we've always said to them right at the end, like, anytime you're ready to negotiate, we're there. But if you're just going to continue to put the same thing on the table that you did on day one, it's not going to happen. Well, there's no negotiations with ourselves here. I know, but you're you're between a rock and a hard place here, because there's a systemic problem, and you just touched on it a second ago. Uh, there aren't enough long-term care beds. There aren't enough palliative care beds. There aren't enough uh, hospice bud funding beds for funding, etc. Uh, there's not enough home care uh, dollars being spent. So, and and because of that. All the pressure's on you in the hospital. In other words, you're the focal point right now because none of those other places can supply the level of service that's required here in this province. And until they that's fix that, it, you guys are going to continue to bear the load. That's exactly. We're the fallback position. Yeah. You know, for, well, just leave them in the hospital the then. Yeah, the go-to and the fallback. And you know, we need to be very clear about the expectations of our patients, of Ontarians. And, uh, like, I believe Ontarians believe that when they go to a hospital that they're going to receive the care. And uh, people are doing their very best. There's some really good people in, there are good people in government and in hospital administration. But it does then not mean that we accept and say, well, I guess we just can't do anything about that. We'll just have to accept it. I'm not going to accept that, nor will our nurses. Well, because there is a better way. And, and. Let's face it. I mean, we've, we've looked at now you've studied this. We've talked about it at great length on this program, that if you look at some of the models in Scandinavian countries and over in the UK, they do deliver a better level of health care in the whole system. And it's not by cutting jobs. It's by spending money in the proper places. Yes, the system's a little more costly, but you know what? Everybody's happy with it. Now, they'll pay money if they know they're going to get a decent health care system. The frustration that we as taxpayers feel right now is that we're paying all this money? I think it's like fifty-two cents out of every tax dollar goes to healthcare, and the system's not very good. And I, I think that you know that's a really good point. Is that you know some of the strategies that are being literally forced on us, or trying to be forced on us right now, have not worked and do not work. And so yes, there's some front end costs, but there's that's what I said to them at the table. Look at you're just trying to deal with the issue with the stick and we're trying to say to you if you have if you feel your vacancies if you know you deal with the workload issues if patients can be cared for properly your back you know the back end costs will take care of themselves but instead you want to you're tabling regressive things we've got the sickest and most injured workforce are nurses yet you know they want to they want to cut our benefit plans they want to do all of these negative things to the workers and this is just not the way to go here. You know, this is, you're wanting to hit us with a stick and we're trying to deal with the problem on the front end by having the adequate number of nurses so they're not working overtime, so they don't have the heavy workloads that contribute to the sick time and the injury rate. But, I, you know, no matter how many times and how blue in the face I could become or our team could become trying to describe this to them, it was a non-starter for them. 
if it is the biggest uh, dollar item in in every budget, then it's just got to it's how this money is spent. And and I know that uh, the, the critics will always say, well, you can't fix a system by throwing money at it, but you can fix it by spending the money wisely. And and I think that's a, a that's a, a, a discussion these guys don't seem to want to have. <laughs> that is exactly the discussion that they don't want to have. And I, you know, I don't know what it will take. Um, I, I don't know. I think the public hearing more about the sort of the details, and I mean, not everybody who who you know, it, we have people in that are paying attention, as I said earlier, to the media and walk into hospitals. But there's a lot of people who who don't have any experience with the healthcare system, at least not in the hospital sector. And so to them, it's a really difficult concept, and it's complicated. But I think that, you know, people are really smart, and I think if, you know, they are paying attention, they'll, you know, they'll think about this, and I hope that they do speak to their MPPs or hospital administrators or even friends and family to say, you know what, this this just doesn't feel right. And I said to our team, you know, when things don't feel right, you get that feeling in your gut, you know something's wrong and something is wrong here. But you know talking about yeah, Here, we, you know the way. So this, here's the way this thing rolls out, Vic, and I find this to be fascinating. Obviously, there's a contract negotiation, which is why you and I are having this discussion right now. But uh, invariably, when we do a, a segment on the show about this, you know, you know, the motivation for it a lot, oftentimes, is a public figure who finally has to ask, asked, has to access the system, and they're 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 mortified by the level of care and by the overcrowding and by the short staff. And then they start complaining. But you're, you're bang on. The debate for this goes on in the halls of Queen's Park and in city halls around the province. Spend some time in the hospital. Find out exactly what's going on. You know, get yourself in. You'd be surprised. And, and those are the stories that need to be told. And they don't tell them because, like you say, we don't need the system. We don't use the system. We don't access the system until it's absolutely positively necessary, sometimes in very dire circumstances, and then we're, we're appalled by the level of care. You should be talking to your elected officials about that now, not when you have to access the system. Yeah, well, I totally agree. And, it's, you know, I say take a walk in, you know, our shoes and, you know, talk to someone who's been there or, you know, wander in there and see. Yeah, I, I don't mean get a guided tour from the hospital administrators. No. Just go walk <laughs> no, the halls. Yeah, yeah. Don't get the guided tour because uh, you won't get to where you need to probably. But uh, I, I think this is, you know, it's not about beating people or individual administrators as much as as the public rising up really and saying, you know, we want the healthcare system uh, there for us when we need it, and uh, well, I certainly want it there for people when they need it, and for my friends and family just like anybody else. And we can't allow it to continue to deteriorate and. Someone asked me the other day, well, was it really about wages? And I said, we didn't even get to wages. We, we, we didn't even get that far. You know, you know, there were some numbers, but we never even had a discussion about wages during this whole, whole thing uh, over the last 13 days. You know, it, this is about patient care. This is about nurses' workload and professional obligations to the college and to themselves personally as professionals. You know, they are very firm on what they want um, happen and what they know they, they believe needs to happen. I mean, they were the ones, they got the solutions, they're at the front line. They know what they need. And what they need is proper staffing, reductions in workload, uh, and being able to, you know, to practice um, to maintain the standards of care that they're obligated to under the College of Nurses. I and mean, this is what, they, what they're hoping for, and, and they're really looking for some relief uh, on the front lines. They're going to work every day, sometimes, you know, for the, you know, the 
third overtime shift in a two-week period. They're going. Um, but man, oh man, it's harder and harder every day. You mentioned uh, that you're going to be meeting with the arbitrator uh, with, uh, I guess, the end of the month, the 26th, 27th, I think, were the dates. Uh, is Is that binding arbitration? Yes, it will be. Yes, it will be. So yeah, you, you'll be able to state your case. The hospital association will do theirs, but it's going to be spring before you find anything out. Well, it, it, ab- absolutely. Like we would hope for an award in April, um, if you know that was sort of the timing that you usually see. We've asked for it to be in April, but you know it's a bit of a wild card. But we're we're hoping that that will happen. Um, but yeah, we're you know we a few weeks away now from that hearing, and it's a two day hearing. And then we have to wait. We will wait to see what the arbitrator says. Well, for everybody's so, sake, I hope there's a positive response to this. Uh, Vicki, uh, good luck with this. Thank you so much for the time today. Greatly appreciated. Well, thank you so much for your interest. I do appreciate that. Thank you. You betcha. We'll talk again soon. Vicki okay, McKenna, so who is the uh, president of the Ontario Nurses Association at Loggerheads with the Hospital Association. And hey, guess who gets stuck in the middle? Yeah, you, me, people that have to access the healthcare system. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.